Hello, everybody. Welcome back to this uh, show, this podcast, Authentic Avenue. If you are new, this is a show where I talk with business leaders, thought leaders, industry leaders about not only that word, authenticity, but about the specific industry in which they sit, the future of it, the trends. We try to keep it real. We try not to BS anything. Today, I keep it real uh, in the world of education with a woman named Kelly Loth. She is the uh, founder and CEO of MindSpark, and they are putting together fantastic experiences for brands in the world of education, but really they are helping to elevate kids to the point where they can enter the job world confidently, even from high school. We talk about her background in biochemical engineering, how she just started a school I thought that was very interesting. And now, of course, what she is doing to make sure that people are living up to certain educational standards of their programs. She's got a certification around that. She's very passionate about this. I became inspired just listening to it because I think a lot needs to be done to help children become educated and prepared for the job world. And I don't necessarily think the college is always the answer for it. And we talk about that a little bit at the end. So without further ado, I'll get out of the way. I'll let you hear this perspective for yourself. Uh, this is Kelly Loth. Kelly, I'm going to hope that you teach me something today, um, just because I have tangentially learned about the world of education simply from like the academic side. I've talked to folks like Coursera before. I talked to the CMO of Harvard Business School. That was a really cool chat. And I'm talking to you because I, I think that your perspectives are unique, obviously very powerful, and a little different from what I would have assumed would come from an education brand, could even call it that. I'm going to get into all that in a second. Could you please, for the viewers and the listeners, um, just what is MindSpark? Can we start there and then we'll riff? Yeah. So hello. Yes. Nice to see you, Adam. Um, yeah. So MindSpark, I think at its very essence and core is really uh, an agency that intersects industry and education in meaningful ways. I mean, that's just sums it up, I think. So a lot of people don't know quite what to do with this sometimes and say, are you a nonprofit? Are you a startup? Are you a you know, consultancy group? Really, what are you? But at the core, what we do is cultivate extraordinary experiences for our clients to solve problems. That's what we do. Got it. Okay. So I, I find it really interesting at the start there that it, that you refer to it as, as an agency, because I don't think I've heard of like an education agency, and maybe there's a distinct reason for that, and you'll tell me. I want to start before that, and I want to get your recount of how does a biochemical engineer make her way in education? <laughs> she kind of fumbles her way into it, to be okay, honest. Cool. Can, you, can you walk us through the tumbles of the fumble, yeah. please? There's no direct, direct line of sight there. Um, yeah, so all my life I've loved the study of science and math and um, fell into that and decided that that was going to be my path forward, and honestly one summer kind of bored and not able to, um, because of the workload I had at school, not able to have like a full-time job, I decided to sign up and help out with some summer camps in which we were helping uh, young students come to campus and just be immersed in science and math. And uh, it was particularly kind of focused on the middle school age and, and lots of girls uh, were involved, which was really exciting. And I just fell in love with the prospect of helping um kind of feed that pipeline towards something that I really loved and getting, you know, these 12, 13, 14 year old kiddos excited about the world of science and math and what was possible for them. And many of them really didn't love it. They had kind of fallen into it themselves or 
were told they had to come because their parents didn't sure, yeah, get them out of the house. Yeah, All exactly. Right. And so it was just really, it was just really fun to spend a few weeks with them exploring and hearing their questions. And they were so curious and they had such great ideas. And I just really fell in love with that. And then found that kind of in my own way in the work that I was doing, um, there needed to be more of that. There needed to be more of that kind of love and passion for what's possible and asking questions and being curious. And so after spending several years in the field, um, I just thought, you know what, I think I'm going to give the science education pathway a try and see if I can actually make a difference um, and, and go from there. And that's kind of what I did. So. And part of that, as I'm aware, is starting a whole school in 2009. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, this went from summer camp to full school awfully quickly. I'm probably missing a few tumbles here, but can, like, how do you just just sit up one day and be like, I'm going to start school today, a whole school? I mean, yeah. what, what goes it? That must have been a crazy. Ch- had you been entrepreneurial like before that? in starting your own coming, things? Yeah, I think coming from industry and, and being very, like I said, being very kind of of, of a, a falling in love with science and math early on, I just ask, always have, always asked a lot of questions, kind of that annoying yeah. kid. And yes, I think the way things work and the way things um, come together and it's always been a passion of mine. And so spending uh, close to eight years at that point, maybe closer to nine years in education, both as a teacher and Kind of overseeing some science pieces, I quickly saw that science just wasn't a priority for schools. There was so much focus on reading and math, um, and that, but that science was where the magic was happening, where kids were excited, why they loved to come to school, you know, all of these pieces. And so, myself and two other amazing and brilliant women um, kind of just sat around. Uh, we were a team at that time, and we kind of sat around a table one day and said, "What would it be like if you built a school?" where the sole focus was around science and you learned the skills of math and literacy through the lens of science and social science. What would that, like, what would that look like? And that was way before STEM was something and it was cool and all of those things. And so we just started, literally, this is so lame, but we started building a notebook and a binder with all of our ideas and collecting some data and, and um, you know, started visiting models across the country of different learning styles and different learning modalities and different school types I just kind of started building our dream. And then the perfect storm happened where we got a chance to pitch this idea to our superintendent and he was brave enough and um, I think smart enough to say yes. And so within a year, we opened one of the first K STEM schools in the country that was fully public with no admissions requirement to get in and uh, had a wait list of over 400 kiddos after year one. So Good Lord. Yeah. Well, that's quite the change from having a program where you suspected that kids were just forced by their parents to come in. You had yes. kids literally waiting to do this. Yes. And mind you, this is what, 10, 12 years ago at this point, mm-hmm. as you rightly noted, STEM was not such a hot button word or acronym. And, and and I didn't really know or think about it either. And shame on me, it's probably because I'm a guy and probably because it just wasn't something that had impacted me as much. Because you know, I know that that today is something where uh, where female STEM education is super important. Uh, minority STEM education is super important. And that's just not something that I was exposed to. Thankfully, I get stories, you know, all the time with, with great brand leaders on Authentic Avenue where I've become attuned to these sorts of things. And and w- well done on your part to see this a dozen years before now where it was not so popular. You know, starting it in a notebook, that that's a great story. I mean, you had this team of people with an idea and one probably fantastic 
pitch to a superintendent. I mean, that's a movie script right there. So very cool. Very, very cool. Um, my first experience with seeing a peer of mine go to uh, pursue, I would say, STEM more seriously was that was actually just was in the coding world, really. I had never heard of a coding boot camp. Seven years ago when I started my professional world post you know school, I uh, there, there was a consultant in the business that I was a part of who left after a year to go to a coding boot camp in uh, in Denver in Colorado. And she still lives there to this day. And that, in my mind, I was like, well, that's interesting. Is that just like an educational thing? Is that because it's it's going to elevate her in terms of a business? Is, is, is it kind of like an MBA for coding people? I didn't know because I'm not a tech guy from that side. And my guess is that those sorts of journeys and the ways that brands empower those journeys inspired, at least in part, MindSpark. Because you said at the beginning that you're doing a lot to offer experiences for brands. How did you navigate from the spirit that inspired you to get the superintendent to open up this first public STEM school to, hey, businesses need to step up and do a lot more for those who weren't of K-8 age when I began this? There's a huge opportunity there. When did that creep in? Yeah, actually from day one, and I'll just share with you. I mean, again, I came to education second like as a second profession, I also came into education incredibly naive. So coming from an industry background, I really just was like, why, why is this not happening? And I quickly saw that there was no, the worlds of industry and the world of education sort of have this translation problem where they don't really always sometimes not only speak the same language, but truly don't know what to do with each other. Schools kind of come across as we're schools. We know what we're doing. We're good happy to have you drop off supplies and guest speak, but we really don't need anything else. And then you have, you know, industry that's like, yeah, sure. I love education. I want to help, but I have no idea how to do that. Um, or, you know, should I do that? Should I care? Should I get involved? And that was early on. And I could see that there just needed to be sort of this conduit and this intermediary between the two entities. And that if it was going to make a difference for, for students, it had to be in meaningful activities and experiences. And so we studied what do, what kind of learning methodology most closely mimics what real world scientists, researchers, artists, creators, inventors do? And for us, it was easy. It was problem-based learning, which is probably one of the oldest forms of learning around. And we said, if we can figure out a way to authentically intersect industry partners with problems and students who probably have some amazing kind of beginner's mindset, naive, viable solutions in a way that actually again, creates this academic trajectory, but also an economic one for access and opportunity, why would we not build it? And so that's really what we set out to do. And I honestly will never forget, we <laughs> put out a ton of call outs for industry partners thinking they're going to come like in spades to support this. Right. We had a room the size of Texas and five people showed up one evening to say, what are you doing? Yeah. And those five people are still with us today, 12 years later. But I will say, you know, to look them also in the eye and say, you get it. You're excited about this pipeline piece. You also have to wait for 13 years because they're only five. Right. <laughs> they were a little hard pressed. But those who got it, got it. And we quickly kind of grew our industry partner list from five to 35 to 65. And it just kept going. I mean, and now the schools we started work with over 650 partners. It's mm. incredible. So uh, crazy growth there. I have to wonder, like, what were some of those growing pains that you experienced in the shift from getting 
a, a yes to funding to open a school to getting a yes for a brand to open its wallet mm-hmm. for you because my th- there are two different sets of values. Maybe that's the gap that you just addressed. What were some of the things that translated well into that? And what are some of the things that you ran up against where you thought, okay, in order for me to make education better and connect brands in a better way, I need to be the one to break this. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because that's that's fascinating too. Yeah. I think that on the education side, it was more, I would say, a little bit bureaucratic and political, right? The idea that you want to keep your students within your district, within your boundary area, and you want to provide them a quality education was sort of a driving force. Um you know, even if you didn't understand sort of this quote unquote STEM stuff, it was kind of interesting to offer as a district or as a community, a different type of offering to families. And so I think there was sort of this storm of like, yeah, that sounds interesting. We should, we should definitely give that a try. Um, I think also the fact that it was open to all students was also appealing. On the industry side, there's a different type of value proposition. And that comes from the idea that you should really care about education because it is your, honestly, your upstream and downstream approach to sustainability. Um, it is the way that you get talent and kids early on decide if they're good at things. They decide what they love. By third and fourth grade, you can hear it in their voices when they say, I hate math. I'm not good at science. You know, I don't like to read. And so if they, if you take an industry partner and you put them in the room with a seven or eight year old and they get to just listen to the seven and eight year old share an idea about how to solve for pollinators or how to solve for the wolf reintroduction in Colorado. And they suddenly see those ideas. I've never had a partner want, not want to come back or get involved because it's speaking to what they're already working on. It's speaking to their heart and they're actually seeing it unfold in front of them in the terms of having you know, this talent, this kind of raw talent, if you will, this raw ideas be shared. And so I've literally in 12 years have never had an industry partner. If I can just get them to come and listen to ideas and sit on a, what we call a panel, yep. then they've never not come back. And so wow. it's, it's a, it's a good use of their time. Um, and it's not, it's, we're not asking for money. I keep partnership and sponsorship incredibly separate. I'm really just asking for their time and their talent to say, invest, invest in this group of kiddos, right? Invest in this idea. Like you care about this, your company's spending millions of dollars to solve it. You know, these middle schoolers, these high schoolers, these elementary students, they, they also are invested in this idea. Right. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty powerful. Um, and again, if I can get people in the door, they usually stay. That that's an incredible part of it. And to have such strong retention for something so important is great. I also think that separating partners and sponsors and making those that delineation very clear is helpful. I don't know why. Maybe is it were you first to the space here? Because I feel like a lot of corporate when I hear the term corporate education, immediately what I think is like training programs for our current employees. It's kind of like a top-down approach, people who are already there. And this is I don't know, is grassroots the right word? I don't know, whatever it is, it's just from the bottom up. Were, were you first here? I mean, like, what What do you think really made you stick? Was it that true, like, just come be a partner, no no strings or dollars attached? Like, what made it sticky and why the hell had nobody thought to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think we were first in the space with little ones. We had traveled around yeah. seeing a lot of high schools trying to work with industry partners. And what they were saying to us was start younger. 
because we're remediating at such a level at the high school level, we're not getting these students ready for workforce at all. So start young. So we really did heed that advice. So there were others that were already in the space in 2009 trying this out, but we did listen to them. Um, I think the, you know, the other compelling pieces, this isn't gimmicky. I, I don't, this isn't a silver bullet. This isn't something magical. It's actually incredibly pragmatic and, and very logical if you, if you think that way. And so, you know, this isn't something that's fleeting either. Problem-based learning has been around forever. It's not, not new, if you will. The way right. that we intersect industry and education together is actually quite simple. It's just centered around problems that they both care about. And then we let educators be the education experts and we let industries be the industry experts and be the content experts. And we don't try to make one be the other. And so it's actually a very simple model um, when you boil it all down. And again, it's something that can be sustained because um, it's built within a system with no exceptions. So, you know, it is centered in public ed <laughs> with sometimes uh, crappy budgets and you know, strong unions and all the bureaucracy that comes with our education system, it's just solely smack dab in the middle of that. I did not take it out of a system and say, okay, we did a really great job outside of the system. I said, if we're going to be successful, it has to be centered in the middle of all the constraints, all the barriers and all the challenges that public school faces to show that it can be done and it can be replicated and it can be successful. And I think that's what we've spent the last 12 years really proving and showing um, with our work. So, yeah. and I mean, it's still going strong. So you've got this methodology. Now you, you referenced that earlier in our conversation. I don't want to ask you to spill the secret sauce here on the show, but I, I do want to ask about the standards that perhaps that methodology strives for. I say that specifically because I, I've heard this over the past, I guess, like year, really, in different industries that when organizations take what maybe should otherwise be considered proprietary and almost crowd or open source it for the benefit of others. Mm -hmm. I love that because everybody rises there. So I think in the first instance that I heard about this was, it was the idea of the, of the B Corp cert, mm -hmm. right? Or do you have certain standards in place and practices in place that allows you to accurately, effectively, and efficiently balance purpose and profit? I have spoken to individual brands who have taken some of their formula and put it out for others to share as well. Um, Adore Me, which is a fashion brand, comes to mind. They had this whole playbook about how to build a sustainability, uh, how to, a program, how to build a sustainable brand. And they have this sort of Bible for it that they are now preaching with. And others can just take it. You have, just a couple months ago, you launched this, this DCERT, which for uh, listeners who have no idea what I just said, stands for Disruption Certification. This is my understanding is that it helps to use these standards to help people determine where they are on the spectrum. Are they good or are they bad? Now, I want to figure out what the good and bad is or if there is the spectrum and is measured in that way. What is this and how are you creating standards for others through it? Yeah, I mean, the very mission of why we exist is to expand and replicate this work. So there, there is, you know, the secret sauce is actually not so secret, to be quite honest. We openly share not only our methodology, but we invite people into this space and however they are, messy, you know, put together, however you come, you right. come. And we, we work side by side with you to figure out where to get you to the next level. But there's this notion that oftentimes, especially in education, that disruption is bad. 
uh, and that has a negative connotation. And for us, it's actually something that's really good. It's something that we embrace as an organization. We live by this idea that disruption is healthy and, you know, post pandemic, if you will, everyone's talking about the great reset in all these industries and you see industries rising to the occasion. And I'll, I'll just be honest, education's not, we're kind of stuck and we've kind of gone back to what we were doing prior um, and not in all cases, but in the majority. And so to, to change that in a sector that is, should be so high impact and literally is the foundation of all other sectors um, that we know it's education has got to start embracing this idea that innovation and disruption are good. And so the disruption of certification is actually attempt. And I always say, like you mentioned, think B Corp for education, but it's this attempt to say across four dimensions that industry has identified as important, well-being, inclusion, certainly workforce development, um, and innovation. How well are you faring as, as an educational entity? How, where do you fall on that spectrum of the services you're providing to your students and your educators and your community and your parents? And so, you know, it's not about good versus bad. It's about where are some of the gaps and where are some of your strengths and then networking schools together with each other, but also with industry partners who are very, very good at these dimensions um, to help them, you know, basically become thriving hubs of innovation within their communities versus being the sort of byproduct of society that, you know, just happens because, you know, everybody takes for granted that you're, you send your kid off to school that day. So I think that's, what's really important here is that we're just trying to put a really firm stake in the ground about what it means to change the landscape of it, what it means to teach and learn. Um, And we're not trying to make one size doesn't fit all. We're not trying to make everyone the same, but we're saying no matter what type of school you are, where you reside, here's four dimensions that really do matter. And we've seen them matter more in the last couple of years than ever before. Yep. And where are you at with that? And then depending on what your gaps are, what are the right, you know, where are the pathways for you to get some help and support and some professional experiences to help you be better and more upskilled um, at these dimensions? I got to ask because you've put this out. I'm sure that it's been filled out many, many, many times, people trying to say, oh, I'm great or am I great? And part of that questionnaire, I've looked through it, part of it is just like, you know, make a multiple choice, part of it's a free response. So you've probably seen some come through where you've been like, damn, these people are killing it. They are ideal. They have, they, they, they are top of the heap. Who should we look up to? Like who, who are a few standouts in your experience, even though this is just a few months uh, matured, this desert, like, who are the early standouts that anybody who's in this world of education or to get another example, like if they open up another tab and they're like, well, who's really doing this well? Like who, who's a, who's at the top of the heap right now? I, I'm curious. <laughs> That's such a great question. Um, you know, at the risk of not like calling out specific schools, I'll just give you sort of a, a, a t- an answer you're probably not going to like, but I would say, honestly, our rural partner schools are killing it. And I would say it's because they're more agile. I would say it's because they're like, the schools that have come forward want to do this. And I would just say that's the first part of what you call killing it is a desire to be, is that a desire to to do better, right? To create something that is different and maybe outside of the box for these folks. So our rural partners who have jumped in 
it's not that they're top tier across all four dimensions. It's more this idea that they're like, wow, I've learned so much about what my gaps are. I actually now know what my strengths are. And I'm so excited, so darn excited to work with MindSpark and industry partners to co-design for the dimensions that I need some support around. And to me, that is more successful than a top tiered school that already has it all figured out um, because it's really hard uh, to replicate that over and over and over. And so for me, the schools that are willing to dig in and make a difference is where I want to spend the majority of our time and resources. Now, I want to make sure I got that right. You said rural partner, like R-U-R-A-L? Yeah, like our rural schools, small, you know, and, and again, all over the country. So they have embraced this and have taken the DCER and are, again, just hungry for resources and to, and to dig in and figure it out. And I am so proud of them. Did that surprise you? I mean, to me, I would think that now you get the word rural, just like you get a visualization in your head of what that is. My guess is that or my guess would have been that they would have been particularly resistant to change. What is this new wave of education tech? No, I, you know, I've done it this way and this is the way I'm going to keep doing it. And that's highly stereotypical, I understand. But like, did that surprise you at all when like again and again you were saying, damn, these rural schools are, are way more progressive than maybe you would have thought? Is, did that come as a shock? I think, yes, it did. But I would also say, and this is just, this is kind of Kelly's own viewpoint of this, but just working now for years with a lot of our partners in these small communities, one, there's an incredible, you know, sense of, of pride and connection through the educational entities in these communities. And also a lot of the communities that we're serving are seeing a huge shift in industry. I mean, the giants are leaving, right? The oil and gas companies are, are no longer there, you know, to your point, or the coal is no longer around. I mean, there's just some things happening where in order for them to survive and their communities to thrive, they have to start looking at other ways to keep people there in a different way. And they have to start thinking about the ways they connect to other industries in a different way. And education is a really powerful conduit for that. By itself, it's not the answer, but paired up with industry partners and others, it truly is. And so I think what's happening is you see them excited because they see it as a way to not only improve the overall health um, and economic value of their community, but they see it as a way to center education as a way to actually attract more businesses to them. And that to me is incredibly exciting. Mm. It's it's fascinating to me just because that changes what my perspective would have would have been like I I'm I'm proud of them too and I'm just learning here about it for the first time so that's great actually the way in which you're talking about it to get them to do things a little bit differently um is the is the crux of my penultimate question here and then I have another one at the end about defining a specific word but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment when we talk about elevating students and setting up programs to help them you know move through let's say it's like move through high school Get ready for the job world, really. I understand that, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong here, but that some some of these programs, or at least the results of some of these programs, have allowed students to transition from high school like into the job world. Well, and but like for my maybe entire life, and maybe it's because it's come from mostly from for-profit institutions, have like I've been it's been drilled into my head. The most conventional knowledge, wisdom, whatever you want to call it out there, says, go get more education, go get your bachelor's. Focus on college. That's where you got to go. Then you can jump into job world. 
Uh, can we talk for a second about how you're striving to change that narrative? Because most of the time I hear about like, eh, college isn't important. Frankly, you hear it from like social media gurus who are like just trying to sell you some vaporware, right? <laughs> That's not the case here. Clearly it's not the case here. Um, and maybe it ties back to those rural partners being the most disruptive because a lot of those people go straight from high school to the job world. But could you help me learn more about this? Because my experience in this world has been so colored by that for-profit view of you must get the next degree or else dot, dot, dot. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a debate and, and I think there's strong arguments on either side. I think from my, you know, where I sit, it's kind of a silly debate because I think oftentimes in education, we do this, we tend to swing the pendulum really far to one side or the other and make this an or debate when really we should be thinking about it as an and. And so our main focus and and stance on this is that it's all good. And so if kids have a desire to seek higher education um, and pursue a passion that they have and want to go to college, they absolutely fundamentally should do that, whether it's two-year or four-year or whatever that looks like for them. But there is nothing wrong also with wanting to and having the skills and obtaining those skills early on, like you said, in high school, even, and then being employable. Um, we hear so often from our industry partners that even students who have spent four to five years in college are still not actually employable. Like they may have a great background and knowledge set, but they still lack some of those employability skills that are so sought after. And so if we start early on in the pipeline and build those employability skills, whether they choose to go to college or they actually walk themselves into industry right away, um, that's a good thing. And so I think it's about having those options available. And, and to be honest, the majority of the students that I work with, college is a barrier for them. So whether they want to go or they, or they don't, they can't access college right away. And so they have to have jobs to feed their families and to keep their, you know, their livelihoods of their families going. And so then if you say that, you know, college is the only way to get a high paying wage job and a family sustaining wage, then you've, you're isolating an entire pipeline in, of these brilliant, brilliant students that contribute right. so much. I mean, I just had a female student at one of our high schools who literally is 19 years old and will become one of the youngest associates at a major tech company. She will make $65,000 a year and comes from one of the poorest neighborhoods in Denver because she went through a high school program where they valued her skillability and helping build her as a person that can enter the workforce. I mean, that's, that's huge. That's, that's life-changing. Yeah, yeah. life-changing. So I don't think it's an or debate. I think it's an and, and we've got to be more receptive uh, in the sector to say, what are the right opportunities and options for the students in front of us? And how do we help them get there yep. and not be limiting? I, uh, I, I would love to see more of that. People come straight out of high school and have the skills ready to go to give themselves life-changing economic opportunities, job opportunities, whatever that is. Um, so wonderful, wonderfully done. Um, and I'm glad. Thank uh, you. Know, congrats to that person. Let me, let me round out with this um, because this show is called Authentic Avenue. I focus on that word a lot, authenticity. I am trying a new thing where I'm asking people how they would define the word because at some point I'd like to write a one-word dictionary on the topic. Just one word. So let me round out with this, Kelly. Through your experience of going through engineering to opening schools to now running MindSpark, 
If you flipped open your personal dictionary and got to the page that had the word authenticity in the top left corner, what would the rest of that definition read? Mm, so good. I think for me, uh, it means showing up as you are. Um, so again, I think that it's a sense of honesty mm-hmm. coupled with a little bit of integrity coupled with a little bit of curiosity and wonderment about what's possible. Um, I don't think you can be authentic if you're not willing to kind of open Pandora's box and ask the questions that you need to ask. And I also don't think you can be authentic if you're not willing to hear the answers to those questions. Hmm. So I think it's authenticity to me is a critical friend (laughs) in this world. So perhaps to borrow some of the mindset that comes from those beginners, the students that you have helped to rise up through your career and through your ventures today. Uh, Kelly, I really appreciate learning more about MindSpark here. Um, Getting getting me this education, as I said at the very top, I, I hope that people continue to disrupt in the way that you've said and that these opportunities continue to get unlocked. I, uh, you know, I didn't have the benefit of going through a program like the one that you, you know, have now, but I imagine if, if somebody out there, uh, you know, listening to this is, is considering something like that, they, they should go for it. Um, and listeners go, go check out Kelly, go check out MindSpark. I'll throw links to everything everywhere this eventually goes. But, uh, for now, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciated it. Oh, Adam, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you. I've had a lot of conversations in the world of education. As I said at the top of that show, I mean, it really has been mostly with schools and to see that Kelly is doing something different, disruptive, as she said, is super important. You know, I had the pleasure of going to a fantastic school for both high school and college, and that set me up really well. And I'm damn well aware that not everybody has that opportunity. And Kelly is leading the charge where I think probably many others should be and joining her. So I I hope that you join me in in looking more into what MindSpark does. If you have the opportunity to maybe have a child of yours uh, be uh, subject to one of her programs, um, please look into that because it's a great way to enrich your children, I think, get them prepared for the job world. Anyway, I'll be back with a great episode uh, next time, probably next week, next two weeks, who knows. Uh, In the meantime, there are plenty of ways that you can engage with more of the stories that we tell here, whether it be in education or beyond. I'm on LinkedIn, so is Authentic Avenue. You can find us there, Connect Network. You can send me an email, adam at authav.com, A-U-T-H-A-V-E. Tell me what you think about this show, what you thought of Kelly's story, where I should go next. If you hate it, fine, write me, hate it, that's okay. I wanna know, and wherever you're watching this, listening to this, YouTube, LinkedIn, podcast, directories, leave a rating, review, subscribe, stay tuned for more. Uh, I'll be back soon. And I'll sign off with this until the next time that I get real with you. Thank you for taking a walk with me today down Authentic Avenue. See you later.